So it's still Christmas. Uh, the world may think Christmas is over, but Christmas begins at Christmas. We were having Advent where everyone else was having Christmas. Now, Margaret and the others will be back in time for the prayers later on. And while they're gone, we're going to look at one of the nastier things that are recorded in the Bible, but which is also, when we think about it more deeply, a reason for hope and renewed intercession and growth by us. So I expect we've all had Christmas cards, perhaps like this one. Or perhaps like this one. Or perhaps not. Uh, this is uh, uh, an historical picture, an extract probably representing uh, the murder of the children that we read about in the Gospel reading. And it's not terribly nice. So we'll have a different one where you can't see the details so much, uh, but it's all going on there. And children are being murdered and women are being defenceless against uh, violent men with swords and other weapons. Now, we're reading from Matthew's Gospel. He was one of Jesus' disciples, a tax collector who responded to Jesus' call. And it's recorded from ancient times that Matthew wrote this book for Christians who, like him, had been born as Jews. And so he was very keen to show that this new Christian faith that he was following and calling others to follow was not an upstart innovation, but the flowering of God's long-term plan. Therefore, he frequently quotes from the Old Testament, pointing out that Jesus himself and some of the things he did uh, were things that were predicted by the prophets centuries before. And we'll see that several places in today's reading. Just before our passage, Jesus has been born and the three wise men, the Nagi, had told Herod they had come to worship the new king. Herod said he wanted to worship him too, let me go where? And the three wise men were wise and realised it might not be a good idea to tell him, so they disappeared quietly. I wonder if Matthew, who must have been a similar age to Jesus to be a tax collector when Jesus was starting being a rabbi, I wonder if he could remember this hearing about this massacre when he was a young man or a boy. He lived some distance away, so perhaps uh, not so much, but it was a bad thing that happened, or maybe bad things like that happened a lot of the time anyway. From his point of view, it was about as long ago relative to when he was writing his book as the Aberfan disaster is relative to us now. And yet, I can remember that. It happened when I was in the same year at school as all those children were. So, who are the criminals and who were the victims uh, in this story that we're looking at? I guess none of us would hesitate to say Herod. He, he is a criminal because he wanted to stay king and was determined to snuff out all potential opposition. But that's no excuse. It is definitely wrong to kill children for that kind of reason. Or for any reason, really. What about the officers and soldiers? There are other people in this story, after all. And they started off as normal people, one imagines. It seems unlikely that any of them grew up thinking, when I grow up I want to go around killing babies, or anything like that, although little boys are horrible sometimes, aren't they? <laughs> so by the time they're adults, they should have thought better of that, and they know it, and so they are definitely criminals. But what were they supposed to do instead? 
If the officer had said to Herod, no, that's wrong, shan't do it, then Herod would have had him bumped off and someone else would have been given the job. If the soldiers had refused the order, the officer, for the same sort of reason, would have made them or been killed himself. Could they have had a debate and then overthrown Herod? Well, probably not, because there were other soldiers as well. They were victims, not of this particular crime which they were doing, but victims of the whole unholy, sinful system that they were living under that presents them with no apparent choice but to go along with the forces that they can't find a way to resist. And all down the years, other people, perhaps ourselves included, have had that same dilemma presented to us. What about the mothers and fathers? Well, uh, I hesitate to say this because maybe something horrible has happened to you in a similar way. Or perhaps not, I hope. But, uh... And the mothers and fathers in this story may have done bad things in their lives, but that's nothing to do with this event. That's a completely separate thing, starting from a different course from Herod's order. And they are definitely victims of this thing. They did not deserve it. Of course, they may have had older children still alive, and perhaps they had other babies in future. But they must have still grieved for the ones that were murdered. So they are, in that sense, suffering from Herod's crime too, uh, and the crime of the soldiers, and also of the unholy system of tyranny under which they all lived. In fact, come to think of it, going back to Herod, is he living under that system and a prisoner of it as well? Does he have an alternative? Does he have to bump off successors to make sure he himself isn't bumped off by someone else? But we come to the children, of course. They had certainly done nothing deserving death, so they are quite definitely victims too. Murdering children is wrong. But as a side issue, thinking about them, we might comment that although their lives were cut off very early, their lives had achieved something very important. Perhaps the reason they lived in the first place. Because having killed them, Herod thought the job was done whereas in fact Jesus was quietly living hidden in Egypt. If instead all the other children had escaped and run away somehow as well, Herod would have known the job was not done, and who knows what he'd have done next in desperation. So these children, one might say, were sort of Jesus' bodyguard, as it were. They deflected uh, Herod's anger from Jesus himself. And that is surely a high and eternal honour. So, why did God allow this anyway? Is God a criminal too? Matthew points out uh, a reading from the Old Testament. This is what was said through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning and so on, Rachel weeping for her children. So if God knew this was going to happen centuries before it did, why didn't he stop it? Is God a criminal too? And I bet we've asked questions like that uh, as well, perhaps why it was the First World War allowed to happen. It's a big question, and here's a short answer to it. In the beginning, God created people to have relationships with. Not machines so much. They're boring, especially if they come from Black and Decker. People, on the other hand, have personality and can respond and make relationships. They can love and make choices. 
Of course, their options nowadays may not always be a great selection, as we were talking about with the soldiers. But that was not how it was meant to be in the first place. Instead, bad decisions made generations ago have spoiled the world, and now we inherit the consequences and limitations that flow from that. And quite possibly, we'll do things in our generation that limit the choices and visit consequences on the next generation. The soldiers in our example, for example, had joined an army that was already founded on a tradition of coercion and of following orders, even if they were bad ones. Sin snowballs down the generations, and one generation gets the consequences of things that happened in the previous and prior generations, and so do the next ones in due course. So, God is not a criminal. Maybe he's a victim because his world has been damaged by this. But above all, he has a solution to this situation. This was the world that Jesus was born into. I mentioned out of van earlier, top left is the coal tip that demolished a primary school. There's a famine, there are accidents, there are injuries, there's knife crime, there's war, and if there was room on the picture, we could fit a few more things in. But there is a ray of hope. Not so much a ray, a floodlight of hope. Because first, although God did not stop the massacre, he did send an angel to Joseph to take baby Jesus away from the danger to Egypt. He has a plan, and God's plans can never be thwarted. God is in control. What about the quote from Hosea, where he says uh, he went to Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, Hosea lived centuries after Moses and centuries before Jesus. Now, Hosea, therefore, was looking back to when uh, God rescued, with Moses as leader, the people of Israel from Pharaoh. By Hosea's time, this was centuries ago, but he was making to his generation the point that God can do it again. He hasn't lost the power. And Matthew is saying, here he is, doing it yet another time. <coughs> as it says in the letter to the Hebrews, his purpose is that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is the really big reason for the incarnation, for coming to earth to be a human being in the first place. So what differences does it make that Jesus became human, a baby in the middle of all these bad things, First, he shared our humanity. As we read in Hebrews, he shared in their humanity, our humanity, being fully human in every way. At the same time, he was still fully divine, of course, unique in that sense, but fully human. Not just looking, but being human. As we will sing later, tears and smiles like us he knew. Doing this was, secondly, an act of love. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Jesus is our great high priest. Now priests are always from the earth. 
people representing people to God. Chosen by God maybe, chosen by people maybe, but still from the earth. So to be the great high priest, the one that supersedes all the others, Jesus became human so that he could slip into that role as well. And then thinking again about sacrifices, and in particular sin offerings. Sin offerings were always some animal taken from the earth. So, when a better sacrifice was needed, as it was, it had to come from earth too. And so Jesus had to become a man first, before becoming our final and perfect sacrifice. And then he lived here, under temptation, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There is a difference between, I don't know how you feel, and actually knowing how they feel. Knowing about something is not the same as knowing it. But Jesus, having become fully human, really knows what it is like to be human, because he is human. And this is a permanent difference. In John 17, 11, we read uh, the middle of a part where Jesus is praying for his disciples, both the ones in front of him and all the rest down the year to our present day. And he says, among other things, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. By becoming human, Jesus draws near to us. By leaving the Holy Spirit when he himself went back to heaven, by leaving the Holy Spirit with us to indwell us, he makes close communion with the whole Trinity, a continuing reality down the ages for those who accept him. And here's a diagram supposed to represent this. The men, women, children, girls, boy, child, whatever, all are, according to the plan, supposed to live with the Holy Spirit indwelling them. He has become man and we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. God and man together, living together as was first was the first plan. God and man together forever. And so to round off, this sermon could remain purely an academic exercise with not much impact. But it could be a spur to greater spiritual growth. So first we see how anything that troubles us, which we might pray about, is something that we know that he himself has met. From this particular passage we see him as a refugee. And so when we pray for refugee situations, or when refugees pray for their own situation, we know that he intimately knows what it is like to be a refugee. Or again, we see him living in Egypt for part of his childhood, a, a country which obviously wasn't Christian at that time, but the, the people who were living there included some Jews that he probably lived with, who were a minority in a hostile country living under pagan rule. So, when we pray for missionaries and Christians living in such a country, we know that he knows what living in such a country without the gospel is actually like. Because he is human, while remaining also divine, he knows all that affects us from the inside out so we can approach him with confidence that he understands. And secondly, 
we see how God wants, desperately wants, and goes to great lengths and expense to get a closer relationship with us, an ever closer union, if we may borrow that phrase from somewhere else. And so we may seek with confidence to draw ever closer to God. It's what he wants. If we ask him for this, we ask it with confidence because we know it is what he dearly wants and is only waiting for us to ask. So let's finish with another Christmas card about Jesus, the hope of the world, the world that is broken, but worth saving, the one that he came to, so that, drawing near to us, we could draw near to him and be together forever. <laughs>